Lord, we just come before you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come and study your word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at your word. In your son's name, amen. amen. All right. Deuteronomy chapter 7. When the Lord your God shall bring you into the land, whither you go to possess it and have cast out many nations before you, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Pezites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God shall deliver them before you, you shall smite them and utterly destroy them, and you shall make no covenant with them, nor show, them, show mercy unto them. Neither shall you make marriage with them. Your daughter shall not be given to, your, to his son, and, your, and his daughter shall not go, take unto your sons. And they will turn away, for they will turn away your son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their images and break down their groves, or cut down their groves and burn their graven images with fire. For you are a holy people unto the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. And the Lord did not set his love upon you or choose you because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn to your fathers, as the Lord brought you out of the mighty, with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of the bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So we'll stop there. Verse 7 starts out with the word, when the Lord your God shall bring you. And I just want to bring that out. The, the first two, two verses are all, God is definitely bringing them out. He's bringing them out. And it's not a if he does or he might, but when he does, he's going to do this, do this for you. And it says, when he shall bring you into the land, whether you go to possess it, and has cast out many nations before you. And God has reiterated this all through, since Exodus all the way through here. He is going to drive the enemy out. This is why when the, ten, the 12 spies went into the land and everybody except for Joshua and Caleb said, oh, it's a good land, but it was such an evil thing because God had been going every time he talked to them. When I bring you into the land, I will drive the people out. So when they come and came and spoke the negative word against God, it was a really uh, bad decision on their part because God had already been telling them, you're going in, you're not even going to be the ones fighting, I'm going to kick them out, I'm going to drive them out. And that's been over and over and over again. And the spies went into the land, they saw these guys that looked like giants and said, there's no way we can take them because they walked by sight and not by what God said. And we had this happening frequently, even in our own lives. How often do we do things because we are afraid of what we see or what we think we see and don't trust God? We do this frequently. And we, instead of trusting in what God says, we trust in what we think we see or what we think we can accomplish. And people will step back and say, well, I don't know that I can talk to that person. I don't know that the, the church can make, make this move. I don't know if we can accomplish this or that or the other thing. And sometimes we know for sure that God, is, or, or pretty sure that God is telling us, and then we just, we pull back. 
and say, God, I just don't know. God, maybe you're just not strong enough to, to be the victorious in this area. And this is where the Jews are right now. You know, it's where they were during the, the 40 years before this time and where they are going to be very often in, this, in the next uh, few stories. Well, he, he did, I mean, he sends, sent his people into captivity uh, all through Judges when they would turn away from him. He, he let their enemies harass them. He didn't, they didn't actually dispossess them, but harassed them, made them vassals, t charged taxes, uh, taxes to them until they repented and, and started the whole process. You know, round and round and round they go. Repent, get back to God, and then fall away, and then get judged and repent. And we see this at the end of the time when Israel is taken into captivity, and then uh, Judah is taken into captivity for, the, for, this, for the 70 years, and they're brought back, and then they're sent back into captivity for their disobedience. God is very patient. He's very loving but he does get angry at disobedience. It's the seven nations that he named off, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Pesites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. He says they're all greater than you, but God was going to drive them out. And this is something that we're told in the New Testament. If God be for us, who can be against us? And we, don't, and we tend to not really believe that in many cases. When it's time to talk to somebody or, or witness to somebody or share the gospel or move forward, you know, move forward for God, we tend to back off and say, well, I just can't do that. And you know what? It's absolutely true. We cannot do anything without God. But with God, all things are possible. And this is what he's telling them. When you go in there, you're going to conquer these nations. And by the way, they are greater than you. He is affirming what their sight says, but he's basically saying, I can do it. And this is what he goes in verse 2. And when the Lord your God shall deliver you before, be, deliver them before you, you shall smite them and utterly destroy them, and you will make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. So God has given them several statements here. He goes, when you fight them, you will win. You will beat them. And when you beat them, you are to utterly destroy them. And this is something that people have gone, how could God be so mean to these seven nations well we've talked about that in the past these seven nations had gone so evil that there were they didn't even have words in their vocabulary for evil they they were just so evil it was commonplace they were so sexually perverted that they didn't have any words for every sinful activity that god said they adultery and fornication were nothing to them homosexuality bestiality pedophilia, every, every variant and, and area of sexual perversion was practiced by them as normal. And God says, destroy them completely. Do not have any mercy on them. And they'd had over 400 years to get right because this is the land that Abraham had walked through. Okay, Abraham had walked through there, and they, but they had been told what God was. They were told what God wanted and then kept the, the Jews went into Egypt and went into captivity for, the, for, the, for, four gener for three generations. Uh, they went into, into Egypt for, and went into captivity. And God says, they've finished their evil. And this is, what God, this is where we're looking at as we're going forward from where we're at now to end times. 
God says there's going to be that point where the world has reached as much evil as he's going to tolerate. And he's going to take the church and the seven years of tribulation will happen and then the millennial kingdom and then the last rebellion of Satan will all happen. We've seen this happen on several on, on occasion before with Noah. God got so fed up with the sin of the people that he destroyed the world and saved only eight. And we see this happening here. God says they, they, they're so evil, they've got to go. Mm-hmm. All right? And we saw, even in the beginning, we figure how evil these were. Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed in Abraham's day, day, and they were already to the point of evil in that valley when God destroyed it. And he's saying, they've had their, they've had their limits. They haven't repented. They haven't turned around. You're going in and you're to destroy everything because they are so polluted and so bad that they're going to ruin you if you leave any of them alone. And he said they were going to make no covenant, no peace treaties with them. All right? And we're going to see in Joshua that there was this tribe that made a covenant with them because they tricked them and told them they lived weeks away and, and Joshua made a mistake of making a covenant without going to God and finding out whether what they were saying is true. And we're going to see that that and how that has been a bad thing all through, all through time for them. So, but he says, and you shall not make marriage with them. Your daughters shall not be given to their sons, and you shall not take their daughters for your sons. Now, this warning should resonate really well with this group of people that he's talking about, talking to, because they have just gone through the trials with Balaam. Okay, remember Balaam was hired by Balak. He was taken up on the mountain, cursed these people. He goes, no, I can't curse them because God hasn't cursed them. But he really wanted the money and he finally told Balak, I can't curse them, but I can tell you how to get them to curse themselves. And he says, send in your girls to them and to commit adultery, to commit adultery and fornication and draw them into the worship of, of your gods and their God will be angry with them. And God killed tens of thousands of them in the process. And Balaam is going to be facing quite, quite a bit of judgment here as they go into these battles but, and have a bad name for the rest of, <laughs> rest of the Bible. But this is something that should resonate really well with them because they've just, this has been in their, gen, their generation that this has happened. Okay, Just before they're getting ready to get here, this is only a couple years away that they've already dealt with this issue of having their guys and their girls, you know, be fallen away by being drawn away by the lustful activities that they committed and, fall, you know, and, and marrying outside of the Jewish religion and falling into worship. And it says, you will not do marriage with them. And in verse 4, for they will turn away your sons from following me and that, that they may serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and destroy you suddenly. And if you remember when Balaam got in there, that God sent a plague upon the people to kill tens of thousands of them because of their sin. This is how serious God deals with sin. Even in our day, we are, we are so fortunate that we are in a period of grace with God, but God still judges extreme sin. Not quite the way he did here because they're, they're under the law. They are under law, and they're, they're not supposed to be doing any of this stuff anyway, and God judges them. 
we now just reap what we sow. If we sow bad activities and, and worship other gods, God's going to pull his blessings from us and we will suffer for our sin. And he still at times will let us suffer for sin, but most of the time he gives us grace and mercy and says, okay, I love you. you Jesus paid for it. You've repented and you're not going to suffer. But in so many times here, God destroyed. You've got Kor, the Korite rebellion where they rebel against Moses and, and God opened the earth to swallow them. All right. Uh, you've got them turning away from God and he sends serpents in to bite them. And if they looked at the bronze serpent with faith, they would be healed. If not, they would die. God has been very quick to judge and destroy. Jonah was told to go to Nineveh to preach to the Ninevites. And he wanted God to destroy them because they're the enemy of, of God's people and he wanted them destroyed. He did not want the Ninevites saved. You know, and we've talked about that. His, his message was a real kind one. Uh, repent, you're going to die in 40 days. <laughs> and, uh, and I don't believe that he put the emphasis on repent. I believe he put the emph emphasis on you're going to die in 40 days. Okay, because he did not want to see them repent. And we see that when he went up on the mountainside to wait for God to destroy them, even though they had repented. All right, but he was waiting. He was waiting for that destruction. And God has dealt harsh, and I've seen him deal harshly in people's lives who, who live in sin. He still to this day will deal harshly with people who, who live in sin. Because he cannot have, especially his children, destroy his testimony. Because he wants us to live in a righteous way that when people look at us, they see God. And this is why it is a very serious thing when God's children do not obey him and honor him. Does that mean we got to be perfect? Absolutely not, because we can't be anyway. But if we're always committing sins, then people look at us and say, well, you know, they're no different than I am. Why would I want to follow their God? You know, they're just like me. They're out drinking. They're drinking every weekend. They're using drugs. They're, they're going to bed with everybody they come across. And, you know, and they're, and they're supposed to be better. Than, you, know, you know, they're supposed to be following this God that is righteous. And they just look at you, and, and the more we're like them, the, the worse off it is because they say, why would I want to follow that God? Now, if they see us mostly being following God, and following once in a while, but mostly following God, they're going, okay, there's something there. There's something there that I might want. But when we're just like them, there's nothing to draw them. We're not being salt and light to the, to the, to the world. And that is what draws them, is they look at us and say, oh, you, this person is different. You know, they look at you and go, wow, the police aren't coming to your house every week to break up fights or to break up uh, the wild parties or to, to, to take you away for your drug use. You know, you're, not, you're not fighting all the time. You're not, you're not living the way we live and you seem to be happy and, they, and that salt gives them a thirst. There's something there they want. There's something they want to be that's different. They see the light. And that's what we're told that we are a lamp, you know, that we put on a hill that people see that light. And we, and we know this, especially for us out here in the middle of nowhere, a light, a light out in the middle of nowhere shines out very bright. It might only be a little, little match, but you see it a long ways away in the dark. And this is what God says we are. In this dark world, we're that little candle that lights up and says, hey, you know, there's a light here. We're different. 
And then when we group together and we have lots of light, like the candlelight services we do on New Year's Eve where uh, Christmas Eve when we turn the, get the lights off and there's all these candles in the room that light the whole room up better than our lighting system does for that matter. <laughs> but uh, all of a sudden we have light and that's who we're supposed to be and God's saying here, you're to be that light. Do not mix yourself with the world and so be taken away. And this is what happens when, when people become unequally yoked with the world. They will almost every single time be drugged down more than they dr drag somebody up. You know, every once in a while you hear somebody that got married to an unsaved person and, and that person gets saved or whatever. But that's the rarity. When you go into the business world, you don't want to be unequally yoked because you're going to have the Christian, hopefully, wanting to do business honestly in God's way, and you've got the, the unsaved person who wants to cut as many corners as possible as long as, as long as they don't break the law, and sometimes they don't care about that. Okay? And you've got this constant tension between them of, are we going to do things God's way, or are we going to cut as many corners as we can to as long as we stay out of prison type mentality? But here he's telling them, do not mix. Do not mix. Verse 5, but you should, and thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their images and cut down their groves and burn their graven images with fire. For you are a holy people unto the Lord your God, and your God has chosen you to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. So they were to go in destroy all the altars and when they were talking about destroyers they're going to they were to basically desecrate these altars uh, in uh, when Josiah became king it says that he went to the altars of all these all these places he killed the their priest and he actually burnt their bones on their altars and a human sacrifice for most of these altars was desecrated it especially if you left the bones on it. So it was not what they were to do, and they were to destroy. And after they desecrated, they destroyed it. So they go, okay, we've desecrated the rocks, and we're destroying it, and we're tearing it apart. They were to cut down the groves, uh, break down their images and cut down the groves. And what they would do is they would put a, basically a totem pole up. And this was the Astora worship was the totem pole in, in groves. And they would wrap trees around this and they called it the sacred grove and the totem with Vestra had all kinds of exaggerated sexual organs on the totem and they would have big orgies in the in the grove and they were told you're going to destroy these totems you're going to destroy the groves you're going to you are to get rid of every aspect of their worship when you came across it you were to destroy it if you sound an image you were to destroy it and this is something the Jews were commanded to do. They were to make no images of a God because God is not something that we know what he looks like. And he says, I don't want any images of me. And he goes, any images that you find, you're to destroy. They had left golden calf worship, which was a big worship in Egypt, along with many others. And they're entering into the place where Balaam, Ashtaroth, and Moloch are the major, major gods. And there's a whole slew of other gods, but those are the three big ones, and then you had Baalim, which was the female version of Baal. You had the Astoroth, and I don't know what the male one was for that. And then you have Moloch, and he was the god of work and power. 
and you were, you know, and when you worshipped Bala, uh, Moloch for power, you put your, you, they would get a fire inside this image, get it red hot, put your child in the arms of Moloch, and then roll them back into this fiery, molten thing, and that's how they worship for power. And by sacrificing your children, you're saying, I want power more than my kids, basically. And so here they're being told, go in and destroy all the images, all the totems. And while you're destroying the totems, destroy the, the groves so they can't come right back and put a totem up in the same, same place. When you come across these altars, destroy them. And it says, the reason are, you are a holy people that God has called. He goes, you are holy unto the Lord your God, and God has chosen you to be a special people for himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. God has chosen us as Christians to be a holy people, a peculiar people, a chosen generation, a holy people that bring his presence into the world. And this is what the Jews were supposed to do. Remember, we've talked about this, how way back in Leviticus, God said, all of these sacrifices anyone can do. And yet they made it so strict that the, the Gentiles could not come in and do sacrifices. When they built the temple, the Gentiles couldn't even, uh, the women could go in further than the Gentiles could. Because you had the court of the Gentiles, you had the court of the women, and then you had where the sacrifices were made. And so women had more rights than the Gentiles in their worship. And women didn't have any rights as far as the Jews were concerned to worship. But they had more rights and could get closer to the temple than the Gentiles could. And yet God had said right back at the beginning that he wanted all nations to come and worship him. That they were supposed to be able to come all the way in and offer these sacrifices. But it was never done that way with the Jews. They put up this wall and said, if you, well, the Gentiles can worship, but they have to become a Jew. And that's basically what they said. You know, if they become Jews, they can come in and worship. But outside of that, they cannot come in and sacrifice. And that was never God's intention. And this is why Paul said you know, later on that the mystery of God, that the Gentiles would be able to worship God. And it was, it's been told it wasn't really that great a mystery. It just was never practiced. That Gentiles would be able to come in and worship. And we see all of this coming down and, and the Jews had always built this wall. And part of it were verses like this where they were told to go into the promised land and kill all the Gentiles that they came across. And they just applied that to all Gentiles. Even though they didn't kill all Gentiles, they just said, well, none of them are worth coming into, the, into God's temple or the tabernacle. So, you know, we've been told to kill them. We're told not to mix with them. And they took these and, and did this with all Gentiles, so that very rare would you get a Gentile brought in. Now, the, the great news is we see many Gentiles that were brought into the line of Jesus. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, all these, all these Gentiles that were brought in and part of the Messianic line that God, God brought in. And he blessed them, and I think he was trying to show them, hey, it's never been my goal to totally eliminate these Gentiles. And the New Testament is all full. And we're in, we're in a period of God working with the Gentile church. Now, Jews can be saved. We're not saying they can't be, but he's working with Gentiles, and he has 
since Jesus, since Jesus. But there's going to come this time when the rapture happens, the church is removed, and God says, okay, all right, Gentiles, we're done with you. We're going to deal primarily again with Israel. And again, it doesn't mean Jews, the Gentiles will be totally you know, eliminated, but God will say, we're back to Israel. And Israel will be the primary focus. That's why it's 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each tribe that will be ministering during the tribulation period. That's why the two witnesses will be there that, that will have the actions and power of Elijah and Moses. And, and I, tend, I, I believe that there'll be Enoch and, Moses and, and Elijah, which we talked about when we were doing doing uh, the book of Revelation. And I just believe that because they're the two, two people who never, have never died. Um, and most people will say that it's Moses and Elijah by the, by the miracles that, that they perform. So, uh, yeah, we're good. Yeah. And verse seven, the Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any people for you were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you and because he would keep his oath, which he had sworn unto your fathers, he and hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of the bondmen from the house of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And this is going back all the way back to Abraham. I chose you when it was just Abraham and Sarah. Just two of you. Not because you were a mighty nation, not because you were strong, but because I chose you. This is something that's very important for us to understand. God chooses because he wants to choose. Not because there's anything special. We look at somebody, as Lynn said, Esther. Just a young girl chosen because of her beauty to be the queen of, of Persia. And God uses her to save her people. And she was very fearful. She, wasn't, she was not being brave when she went in. You know, well, actually, she was being very brave, but she didn't feel brave when she went in. And I remember when we talked about Esther, she was very concerned because she had not been called into his presence for over 30 days. She did not even know whether she was still a favorite or not. She hadn't been called for for 30 days. And, and, and uh, Mordecai is telling her, go. God's going to rescue us. If it's not you, he's going to rescue us from another place and you will die because you didn't step forward. And her famous words that she's well known for, if I perish, I perish. Okay, I'm going to take my chance. You know, you all pray for me because I, I'm, not, I'm going and I'm not called. And, I, and for that, I deserve death and, you know, unless he holds out his scepter and he held out his scepter. We look at somebody like Gideon. You know, Gideon, the angel saw Gideon, and where's Gideon when he meets him? He's inside the vat where the oil, where the grapes are crushed, threshing wheat because he's afraid of the enemy. And the angel's greeting is, Hail Gideon, thou valiant man. <laughs> okay. And at this point, you're looking at a total coward. And he's saying, uh, we've got, we've got, God's got some jobs for you to do. And in the middle of the night, he goes and he tears down the... the the statue of Baal, and then God goes, okay, I want you to go out and fight this battle. And if you remember the story, he gets 30,000 men, and God says, oh, no, you got way too many people to, to fight this 100,000 and 120,000 that you're going to fight. You got way too many. He gets down to 10,000. God says, no, you still got way too many people. And if you remember, he gets down to 300. 
and he's in a panic that night. And God says, if you really don't trust me, go sneak down to the camp and see what they're, what they're saying about you. And he goes down and he hears that the, peop- that the, the army down there, the 120,000 people are terrified of him because of some dreams that they've been having. And he goes back really excited. Okay, God, I'm now convinced that you are going to give us the victory because they're already starting out afraid. Okay, this has been true all through the scriptures. When you look at these people, many times they're starting out very fearful. Not everybody, but many of them. We get a a picture of Jonathan and his armor bearer getting ready to attack a, a stronghold and they start climbing up and they go, well, if they say, come on up, we'll go up and God's given them to this. If they say, stay there, then we'll leave because God hasn't, hasn't given them to them. And they say, well, come on up and we'll show you who, who your God is. And they go up and they kill the entire garrison. You know, Jonathan wasn't starting out afraid, but he still had this desire to stand for God. We see this over and over through the scriptures that God takes the most unlikely person and strengthens them gives them victory. Why? Not because of anything that they've done, just like this verse. I mean, there was nothing special about the children of Israel, especially when God chose them. There was two people, and they had gotten pretty old and didn't have any kids. And God kept telling Abraham, You're gonna, your kids are going to be as, as many as the stars and as, as, as numerous as the sand. And I, can you picture Abraham saying, oh yeah, God, uh, you, there's no kids here. We're, we're both getting pretty old. And then they do it on their own and end up with Ishmael, who's been a thorn in the side of Israel ever since. After their beyond childbearing years, God restores Sarah's ability to give birth and gives her her child. Why? Because God said he was going to do it. I'm the one who does this is what he wants to say. He's told him here in various places, he's going to drive the people out, but not in a way that made them think that it was them that did it. And God says, by the way, I'm also not going to drive them all out at once because I don't want wild animals and, and the stuff to take over your possession. I want you to be ready to, to take over. And because we all know how fast weeds and stuff will grow, even in, even in concrete, if you didn't do things to get the weeds out of concrete, it takes over concrete very quickly and asphalt and everything else and overcomes, overcomes all these things. And God says, you weren't, spe- you weren't all that special, but I made a promise. I made a promise to your father. Which father? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, them. <laughs> He's made many promises. And when God makes a promise, he will keep that promise. Sometimes not as fast as we think he should, because we have this tendency to want things yesterday, or even last week, or last month, or last year. <laughs> And God's saying, in my time, it will happen. In my time. He's telling Abraham, in my time, you're going to have your child. But you're going to have your child. In my time. You're going to get this land in my time. This is the land I promised to Abraham. You're going to get it. I promised it to him. And you're going to get it. And God keeps doing this. In his time, he says, I redeemed you out of the hand of Pharaoh. And we don't really fully understand what a big deal that was. Egypt was the empire at this time. Okay? They were the mighty empire. They ruled that entire area. That area was there, was, had been theirs for hundreds of years that they had controlled that area. 
They were all vassals. It was where they controlled. We don't understand what a big deal it was that God took the people out of Egypt with such a mighty hand and destroyed Egypt in the process. All right? Because right after they're gone, Egypt gets invaded from the north and, and, be, and becomes a new dynasty from the north that took over. Because why? They didn't have an army. <laughs> they, had no, they had no economy. Israel had taken away the bulk of their gold. Their army had been, been killed in the middle of the Red Sea when they tried to follow them. And they were extremely vulnerable and weak because Pharaoh would not bend his heart. And so we've got to understand this is a big deal that they have been rescued out of Egypt. It's a big deal. It's such a big deal that everywhere they're going, people going, those are the people whose God destroyed Egypt. And we see this over and over. Everybody knows what he did. They know about the ten plagues. They know about the army being, being under, under the Red Sea and being destroyed. They have seen the destruction of the power of Egypt and the, and the waning of its power. We just read it like, okay, God took them out. A major power that holds their people tightly being totally destroyed and their people coming out to be a nation. That is the, that's how miraculous this issue is that we're seeing. And uh, we look at it nowadays and just kind of read like, oh, yeah, the God, God did it. <laughs> God did it, you know. Yes, God did it. But we need to see the miraculous side of this. This was a miracle. When people looked at it, they're going, wow. You know, and they're looking at these people. How did, how did these ragtag group of people destroy it? And they just have to attribute it to their God because that's who they're attributing it to. All the way through it, it says, our God, our God. So they're looking at their God and saying, boy, they have a strong God. Can we conquer their God when Egypt couldn't, Egypt and all their gods couldn't hold these guys? Can our God be successful? And then they look at Balak being destroyed. They look at all these countries that have been fighting against them being destroyed already. And they're quaking in their boots. We see Rahab saying, we know that you guys are coming and we're worried about it. We, we, and we hear that over and over as they come in. They're worried about it. Why? Egypt had been destroyed. They know that these guys have a strong God. And they understand that it's their God. And later on in, in Joshua, we're going to read where they were saying, well, he, he beat the God of the mountains, but he can't beat the God of the valleys or the, you know, the God of the rivers. And every time they won, it was like, our God is stronger. <laughs> our God is stronger. You're not going to be able to stand. All right, verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God that keeps covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays them that hate him to their face to destroy them and he will not be slack to them that hate him and he will repay him to his face. You shall therefore keep the commandments and the statutes and the judgments that which I have commanded you this day to do. Wherefore, you shall, it shall come to pass, if you hearken to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord your God shall keep unto you the covenant and mercy which he sware unto your fathers, and he will love you and bless you and multiply you and will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your land, your corn and your wine and your oil, and increase your, your, cattle, your cows and the flocks of your sheep and the land which he sware unto your fathers, unto you, and you shall be blessed above all people, and there shall not be a male or female barren among you or among your cattle. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and, they, and will not put 
on the evil diseases of Egypt, which you knew before you, but will lay them upon all them that hate them, and you shall consume the people which the Lord your God have delivered you. Your eyes shall have no pity upon them, neither shall you serve their gods, for that will be a snare unto you. We'll stop at 16 for the moment. So he goes on, he says, that he is the Lord their God. And he goes, and in case you don't want to, in case you don't recognize those statements, I am Yahweh Elohim, I am also, I am God. <laughs> okay? And, and in case you don't want to really understand that, I'm also the faithful God. I am steadfast, I am sure, and I keep my covenants. I keep my covenant and my mercy with them that love me and keep my commandments to a thousand generations. A thousand generations would be roughly 4,000 years, you know, give or take a few centuries. Uh, a generation was usually at this time considered 40 years. So, you know, a thousand generations, he's talking 4,000 years, basically to the end of history. And he says, you know, I am your God. I'm the faithful one. I keep my covenants. And we have to look at this. The covenant he's referring to right now is the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant was given without condition. God said, I will bless them that bless you. I will curse them that curse you. I will give you blessings and I will give you your land that your feet have trod on. And I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars and as, and as numerous as the sand. This was God's promise to Abraham. It had, for Abraham's time, there was no, if you do this, I will do this. It was, I am doing this. Now, we saw a different covenant at Mount Sinai, where God says, I'm going to give you my laws, and I want you to keep them. And if you don't, you will be punished. And if you do, you will be rewarded. And we hear the people, even before they know what the laws are, they say, we will do all that you say. And I find that statement that they made hilarious because they have already rebelled. You know, when, when Moses goes to Pharaoh, they've been begging for God to come and deliver him. He goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. Pharaoh makes life a little difficult for them. And what do they do to Moses? They say, well, it's all your fault. Why did you have to come and open your big fat mouth? You've made our life miserable. You should never have come. He starts taking them out, and Pharaoh starts chasing them. And what's the very first thing they said? There wasn't enough graves in Egypt, so you brought us out here to be die in the wilderness. They get over the Red Sea after seeing God destroy the Egyptians, and Moses saying, you'll never see them again. They go one day's journey in, and they get a little thirsty, and they go, you brought us out here so you could kill us with thirst. All every step they go... Even before Sinai, they're griping and complaining that God is not faithful enough for them. He's not doing things their way. And we do the same thing so often. God, you just aren't doing things the way I want it done. We're being blessed. We're getting, we're getting all kinds of rewards from God, and we gripe because he's not doing things the way we want him to do it. And this is something we have to be careful of, and this is something he's dealing with the Jews here. I am your God. I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to fill your my covenant, you know. And I'm going to. And in this case, he's also letting them know Abraham's covenant is going to overshadow the covenant at Sinai, where they agreed to be obedient. 
because he's going to say, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you the blessings. Even though you don't deserve it, I'm going to overlook some of your evil. And even to this day, God, because we're his children, overlooks some of our misbehaviors and says, I'm going to give you grace. I'm going to give you mercy. I'm not going to give you what you deserve. I'm going to give you mercy. Why? Because he loves us. He chose us. He knows that we can't be perfect. He wants us to be, but he knows that we won't. He says, I will repay them that hate him to their face and destroy them. And he will not be slack to them that hate him. He will repay him to his face. God repays and people will know that it's God against them. And it's not going to be that he yells in their face, you know, this is me. But it's going to be one of those things where nothing seems to go right. Have you ever been in the discipline of God where nothing you do seems to be right because you're not repenting? You're just trying to fix your way out of his problem and try to work your way out of his problem. And he says, uh-uh, not going to happen. And he turns his face against us and everything goes wrong until we repent. And we finally go, God, I give up. I'm sorry. I, I, I repent. Show me what you want me to do. And then everything turns around and we've repented because he turns his face toward us and gives us the blessing. But when we're in the middle of that chastisement, it seems like everything goes wrong. And when I say everything, I can mean everything because I've been in those places where putting together plans and saying, I'm going to work my way out of this. I'm going to get the answer to this. And God says, no, you're not. Not until you surrender. Not until you repent. And he's saying, I will, I will repay. And he says, I am not slack. But now, God's, God's time frame is different than our time frame. And we've talked about this many times, and especially in Psalms class, because the psalmist complaint quite frequently is, God, why are the wicked prospering and the, wicked, and the righteous being beat up? And God says, just wait. <laughs> just wait. They'll get theirs. They'll get theirs. And you know, how often when somebody looks like they're being blessed and they're, and they're getting everything going their way, if you really get to know them, they're not happy. Everything we look at and say, wow, I would be really happy if I had the big mansion on the hilltop with the, you know, the, the cars in the garage and all of this stuff, and they're just totally depressed. And this is a very true statement. Many people who seem to have everything by our eyes are not happy because God is what they really need. And without God, they're never going to be truly happy. They might be momentarily happy, and we've all been there where we got our new car or our new house or our, our new job, and everything is really good. It's nice. Everything is brand new, and we're happy until the first dent gets put into the car, and it's like, oh, well, now, now it's just a piece of junk. It's just like every other car. The, you know, we keep it long enough that it gets a scratch or a first big repair comes along and says, oh, well, it didn't make me happy. We get this, we can be temporarily happy with stuff that isn't God, but it won't last. It will not be what gives us joy. And we on the outside look like, look at, because we've got God anyway, and we think, boy, if I could just have those other things on top of God, it would be wonderful. And God probably knows that we don't, wouldn't be satisfied with it anyway, or 
we would let it take the place of God. And I have seen that happen so many times with Christians who are following God and they get a little bit of blessings and they get the nice house, they get the cars, they get the bikes, they get the, the quads, they get the boats and all this stuff. And the next thing you know, you're not seeing them because if you have all the toys, you've got to use them. And if you're going to use them, it's going to cut into God's time. And, and God is saying, you are the light, you are to be happy with him. Now, if we can stay content with God, he has no problem giving us blessings, but those blessings oftentimes take us away if we're not careful. We've got to stay content. We've got to stay focused on him. And then God can say, okay, now you've got the blessings. We can, what are you going to use them for? And God is looking for us to use our, use our blessings to serve him, to honor him. And this is where it really works is when you've got the nice house, you've got the swimming pool, you've got the cars that you use them to help others. You, you let the teens come over and use the pool. You, know, you, you, you honor God and say, I am going to bless God with what is there. Verse 3 says, Wherefore shall you come to pass that if you hearken unto my judgments and keep them, that the Lord your God shall keep you unto you the covenant and mercy uh, that he swear unto your fathers, and he will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your land, your corn and your wine and your oil, and increase your, ca- your, your cows and, and the flocks of your sheep and the land which he swear unto your fathers to give you. And you shall be blessed above all people, and there, and there shall not be a male or female barren among you. This promise is being accomplished in Israel today. Even though Israel is not really following God with all their hearts at this point, they are being blessed in their land. They, their, their, land produ- their little bit of land produces more food than they can, use, can feed, and they're selling it to all of Europe. And they're producing the best fruits and vegetables. God is blessing their land and all of this. And he's doing it in spite of them not following him. But that's not going to last forever because we're going to know they're going to turn to the Antichrist. And the Antichrist is going to lead them astray. But God is blessing them. He says, I'm giving you back your land for, for the third time. <laughs> For the third time, I've given you back your land. Now, honor me, and they're not honoring him for the most part. But God is still blessing them. Why? Abraham's sake. Because he promised Abraham he's blessing them. Not for anything that they've done, not for any good that they've done. But you know, the good news is for the Jews in many ways is that they have kept themselves fairly close to being Jews. They've identified themselves as Jews and practice a lot of things, even though they don't recognize God quite the way they should. They still participate in Passover. They still look at, you know, look at many of these things. And we're not talking about just the Orthodox Jews. The Orthodox Jews follow everything as close as they can without a temple. But your, 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 your Reformed Jews are still practicing a lot of these things. And your moderate Jews are practicing a lot of things. Not real strict, not real, real close, but they are saying we are different because God has chosen us. And even in Israel today, when most of them are agnostic at best and atheist, they will still say that we're living in the land that God gave us, even though they don't believe there's a God. Well, my husband was reformed, and he still practiced all the major holidays. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They still have maintained their Jewishness in many places. Even in places where it's been hard for them to do, they've maintained their Jewishness. And 
God is still blessing them because of it. And that's, but it's not even because of what they do. It's because of what he's promised Abraham. I am going to keep your descendants. I am going to bless them. And being prosperous, and it says, verse 15 will be the last one we look at. It says, and the Lord will take away all the sicknesses that he put upon and put none of the evil diseases of Egypt, which you knew upon, the, uh, upon you, but will lay them on them that hate you. And this one I, I think of because in the Middle Ages, when the, when the plague was prevalent and very strong, the Jews that followed God's rules on handling, handling their food correctly and their hygiene and the very fact that God said that if the animals crawl across the plates, you have to, you know, the food, you, throw, you wash the plates or you throw away the food or whatever it, whatever it was that, you know, that they did, they did not get struck by the disease of the plague and all the other diseases that were running rampant because of bad hygiene. But on the flip side of that, they were usually killed for being witches because they were blamed for being the ones that <laughs> caused, caused the diseases. So they didn't, get caught, they didn't get the diseases, but they got blamed for the diseases because they weren't being, being made sick. And they were also considered a lazy people because they took a holiday once a week. Well, any semitism, but you know, they were considered lazy people because they didn't work seven days a week like the rest of the world do, did at the time, and as the world is starting to go back to. It's, it's been a very short period of time that the world has followed a six-day work week and, and actually been shortened down into five or in some places four, but, but God, we're seeing also the flipping back again of people requiring long weeks because Christianity is waning and the influence of Judaism on Christianity is waning. And we're starting to see people go back to, well, if six days are productive, then seven days have really got to be productive. And we've watched Asia do that kind of stuff where they work seven days a week. And so we want to be careful of all of this. God has blessed his people, not because of what they've done, but because he has blessed them. He blesses us, not because of what we do, but because of who he is. And this is the great fact. Jesus comes in, he paid a debt he didn't owe so that we could go to heaven, which we don't deserve. And on top of that, he throws in the blessings of being his children on this earth just because he wants to. And we just say, thank you. And we've got to recognize that they are blessings. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank for the opportunity we had to worship you and to look at what you would have us to, to see. We ask that you help us to just realize how you are blessing and go forward from there in your son's name. Amen.